Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done just that. They never gave up, no matter what. My guests have survived incredible circumstances. And as a result, what I have found is that they each have a passion to help others with what they may be going through. And that is exciting because when we share our stories, and everybody has a story, when we share our stories, we never know who we are going to touch, who we are going to help. A lot of my guests have survived extreme poverty. Some have survived abuse, some both. Some have had to overcome serious depression or disease or any number of circumstances that required a real tenacity to not let go, to not give up. And this show gives them the opportunity to share those stories. And as we share them, we touch hearts all over the world. We're now heard in over 140 countries. And it thrills me to know that your story and my story can help somebody on the other side of the world who will never meet and will never know. But it's true that we will help someone else when we share our own. So I thank my guests. I thank my listeners, of course. Without my listeners, we wouldn't have a show. So I thank each of you today for tuning in to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Today with me, I have Mary Jane Black. She is an author, a literacy specialist for the state of Texas, and she has a master's in English. She wrote her first memoir, which has just been released this month, entitled, She Rode a Harley. Right away, that excites me. I can't wait to hear her story. Excerpts from her book have already been published in the Shark Reef Journal and the Oxford American Magazine. Welcome, Mary Jane. Thank you, Carol, for having inviting me. Now, the title of your book, Mary Jane, I found is intriguing, and that is... She rode a Harley. Now we're going to talk about that a little more later, but first I wanted to ask you about your journey and how you got there. I know that many of our listeners are going to relate with what you had to go through in an abusive marriage, which you not only survived, but you also escaped. So take us back and share that story with us. Okay, I married very young, 18 years old. I was escaping from my parents' own damaged relationship and thought marriage was the escape at that point, ironically enough. 
I soon learned that my husband was emotionally abusive and, and pretty much controlled my life for 23 years. It escalated into some physical abuse. About 20 years in, I knew I needed to get out to survive. Literally, I thought I was talking about my life. So I spent about three years, and I became quite the, the gifted embezzler because I could write a check for so much groceries at the grocery store and get a little change back, and I was able to save enough wow. to get my to get myself enough money to, you know, rent the yes, apartment for yes. daughter and I to get to and turning on telephones and utilities is an expensive process. So I sort of carefully planned for about three years for that escape. And my mother, who had returned into my life, helped me with that by bringing the U-Haul to the door while my husband was at work. And how did that feel? It was terrifying and then exhilarating. I was very careful. You know, I got a security control building and and I left a note and just sort of disappeared. I knew I couldn't tell him in advance in a more civilized manner. So it was both scary for my mother and me because we knew that if he came home, it could be a dangerous situation for both of us. But it was also exhilarating that first night sleeping alone and being with my daughter alone without any fear. Looking back, would you do the, the same way again? And maybe what I want to do is address what other people might be going through. Uh, absolutely. And yes, I would. Because now that I look back in my life, I think about all the gifts and the blessings, including that second marriage, that wouldn't have happened if I'd been too afraid to leave. So sometimes you have to kind of work through the fear to open up the doors to more magnificent possibilities that you don't even think are possible. Because uh, I certainly didn't have that as a possibility. I just knew I had to get out. Uh, my daughter went with me, and uh, she was always supportive. If you, you know, when you read my book, you'll learn that I had a son at the time. He was about, he was 21. And I did not tell him because the Latin, I had told both my children a few years before that I was going to leave their father. He told his father, and that was a that was not a. There were a lot of consequences on me oh, for that. I can imagine. Occasion. Yet you were still able to escape, though. Yeah, I I kind of kept things very quiet and continued to work and behave in the appropriate wifely fashion until I was able to leave. But this time, my daughter certainly knew it was coming. And she certainly, I'm happy to say, chose to go with me. And the reward for both of us was great. I, I got Dwayne as a husband and she got Dwayne as a father. That, that would not have happened if I hadn't walked out that door. So tell us the love story. What happened? Well, it's interesting because about nine months after that escape, and I really did love the hermit life, I went on a blind date at Chili's. My friend had talked me into it, and she said it was free food and free drinks, and she didn't expect <laughs> And she knew I didn't get that very often. And, you know, she said it was a colleague of her husband's from his work, and he lived in Texas. So we went on that blind date, and I was, and it was, I know it sounds trite, but it was truly was love at first sight. It was like I'd known him my whole life. It was not, it was complicated in the beginning, but we eventually worked through that. Now, was that love at first sight on both sides? Yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. Scared both of us, I think. Because he, he had been divorced twice. We were both veterans of bitter marriages, so uh, we were not certainly looking for a, a commitment or a relationship. We had daughters. Okay. Oh, he had daughters, a, a daughter as well. Yes, she was. Jessica was about 12 at that time, and Stephanie was 16, my and, daughter. And maybe address a little bit of some people's concerns or 
around step parenting and blended family? It, it's always a complicated situation. I, I could never replace Jessica's mother, even though she had a difficult relationship with that mother. But we truly did love each other and sort of became a family. Stephanie appreciated having a sister, and I think Jessica appreciated having an older sister. Once we moved to California and we were separated from Jessica and her, her mother, or Stephanie was also living in Texas at that time, so there, that distance complicated the matter. And it certainly became more difficult once they got older. But no, the step-parenting was a good situation. And I think both Dwayne and I would say that we ensured that the girls knew the person we were going to marry and felt comfortable with them and that the girls liked each other before we moved forward. Actually, there's a story that I will tell in the memoir that I I stayed away from him. Certainly, he I tried to encourage Stephanie to continue to have a father. I didn't want to come between her and her father. but. She had her own difficult relationship with him and chose not to. Essentially, when I married Dwayne and I called to tell him that, that I was remarried, he insisted that I come see him to bring him some piece of furniture that he thought that I had taken in the divorce. <laughs> you know, the complicated relationship. Yes. So I went, but Dwayne went with me, and I certainly describe how Dwayne had him carry the furniture into the house, and he went in with him, and I don't know what was said, but certainly my first husband never contacted me again oh my goodness <laughs> i like the way that story ended there <laughs> <laughs> i saw him at stephanie's wedding and i described that also but he certainly didn't interact with me much at all so you are then married you are happy you've become a family and then something happened yes we had been married about 13 years when uh, Dwayne began. He was never ill. And at his mother's funeral, he began to become really sick at his stomach. He went to vomit in the bathroom, and he had never in 13 years had I ever seen him sick to his stomach, and certainly to that stage. So I encouraged him, and after medical tests and doctor visits, we thought it was his gallbladder, but it turned out that he had pancreatic cancer. They found a tumor in the pancreas. And your first reaction? Sort of shock. It was really devastating and probably doubly so for me because my mother had died 10 years before from pancreatic cancer. So I kind of felt like I was haunted by pancreatic cancer. And so I, I knew better than most the consequences of that diagnosis. It, it is harder for me when I talk to other women who have lost husbands to cancer, certainly that type of cancer, mm -hmm. because it was hard for me to keep hope alive because my mother, it was three and a half months from diagnosis to death. So I sort of had a complicated history with pancreatic cancer. It was that fast. That is incredible. Well, one thing we do know about this type of cancer, you don't get it diagnosed until it's stage four because there are no outward signs. And my mother certainly ignored some of the outward signs for a long time. Can you possibly share some of those signs with our listeners? Absolutely, and Dwayne certainly experienced these. That's why it was misdiagnosed as uh, gallbladder in the beginning. It's, you know, really bad heartburn. You can't eat anything without the acid. There's some pain, and the, the absolute sign is that you begin to turn yellow. You get jaundice because the tumor and the pancreas presses against the liver. And so for my mother, that, that was when we knew she needed an MRI. And Dwayne was beginning to get a little bit of that yellow tinge, but certainly he did not have full-blown jaundice, but it was still stage four. That's interesting. I had never heard that before. And you, you didn't know that at the time either, right? No, absolutely not with my mother. And it wasn't as evident in Dwayne when he was diagnosed. Later, of course, in hindsight, I go back and go, yeah, I think he probably was. 
getting a little jaundice, but it was not something I noticed or even thought about. But then again, you don't ever, that's not the first thing that occurs to you. So tell us a little bit of how you dealt with the emotions around during that three months, because I'm sure that there were, there was hope, there was fear, and whatever else that you want to share about how you how you handled it while you were going through it. I think the only way I made it through it was doing one day at a time, and certainly Dwayne and I agreed on that. We didn't think about the future too much. It was just get through this one day and whatever the medical world and the routines and the procedures and and working through the pain. It's an extremely painful type of cancer. So really, it was just living one day at a time, just making each day sort of count. And it, physically, it was exhausting because after a year or so, when the, the cancer began to worsen, there wasn't much sleep because he would have to get up and have medications every two to three hours. So I was sleeping in shifts, and that went on for about eight months. So being a caretaker for someone who is dying, especially a spouse, is really in a class all by itself because unless you've gone through it my guess is it's difficult to relate how did you deal with that when you had to take all of your energy and put it towards your husband what did you have left to give yourself well not much one of the things in my life was my work and I loved what I did and one of the things he requested after his surgery in San Francisco, we lived in Northern California at the time, was to not let him die in California. So we moved back home to Texas where I didn't work for many months until I had to work, you know, for the money. <laughs> but it was suddenly not having my work. It was not having work friends. It was very isolating. So there was a lot of that going on, too, because I'm, you know, I have a very social job. And so it was a full time nurse. So that's difficult. But it's also kind of watching the person you love sort of disappear in front of your eyes, which is truly not something I expected. And I was not particularly good at taking care of myself, but I do have to say that Dwayne always took care of me. And one of the advantages, if there were any from this move, was that he had his brother and his family in the area. So he would, while he was still able, drive to one of their houses to spend the night so I could have a night with sleep in a spa or something to kind of get away from it. So he kind of took that step while he still could. Now, did you have to be strong for your daughters or were they a strength for you? Well, my daughter was a strength for me. That was another consequence of the illness when we moved back to Texas is that Dwayne's daughter, Jessica, really could not face her father's impending death. And certainly he was getting worse. She her way of keeping hope was if she didn't have to see him be sick, he wasn't sick. Aww. I know that one time when I took him to the hospital here in Austin, I uh, and Jessica lived about an hour away, I really just had to almost demand on the phone she come see him because she didn't want to come. My daughter flew from D.C. instantly. So it was, my daughter was there more for us, and he would certainly say that than his daughter because that was just the way she could deal with it, and I certainly understand that. Yes, we all have to yes. We all have to deal with this the best we can. And you made it through. You survived. What did yeah. you What did you learn, if anything, that you have since used possibly in your writing or just in sharing with friends or other people who may be going through this? What What lessons did you take away from this? Well, one lesson I learned is that life goes on. You don't want it to necessarily, but it is relentless and it does go on. So you just have to kind of wake up and make the best of what's left. Certainly, I kind of 
thought we would go together. I envied those couples, you know, that die within a few weeks of each other. Right, that, right. That was not going to be my, my future. So I just had to learn to do some things, like reach out to other people. I could just lie in bed for weeks and not get out of the house, and I had to force myself to get out. I became a secret grocery shopper at midnight because when you can't sleep, that's the only place you can go and wander the aisles and nobody looks at you funny. <laughs> so I could kind of, you know, and there were other probably grief-stricken people in there too, so I could get up and walk through the grocery store and, and at least get out. And then, you know, I reached out to my daughter. I, I got another job near the end of my husband's life, so I had a job to keep myself busy with routines during the day. But I really had to reach out and find those people who were actually there for me. A work colleague who was a friend became my best friend because I told her one time I went to hospice grief counselor and she told the group of us that we sigh a lot after we when we're in grieving because we literally forget to breathe and so when she heard me sighing she would come into my cubicle just lay her hand on my shoulder and say you're not breathing so wow now I know that there are many people there's different levels of grief I'm I'm sure and different stages of grief and I'm thinking of someone very dear to me as you're talking who has since remarried and she still is suffering deep grief is there anything that that you can suggest that maybe was a help to get that you uh, can share of what you did to get through that? I think I had to accept the inevitability of grief, and that grief doesn't end. I think what made my grief particularly difficult is that our culture isn't good at grief and death. They, there's somehow this myth that you're just going to get through it at some point and you're going to move on with your life, and you have to accept that it doesn't go away. It's never going to get over grief. And that certainly, Dwayne has just integrated kind of into my life now. And grief is grief is just part of my life. Mm. I still, I have friends, I have joy. And I, you know, like your friend, who knows what's in the future, even if you remarry, that person and that grief is still a part of you. You learn how to, yes. you learn how to live through the waves of it because strange things will trigger it. But you still, you learn to be not content. At least you need moments of joy and happiness and it. You know, and that person's still a part of that. I think that's good advice. And it it takes away some of the guilt because I think that's one of the problems, especially as she yeah. remarried, is that she feels grief for, or sorry, she feels guilty for still hanging on to that grief and that love from her past. But what you're saying is make it a part rather than trying to separate it. Absolutely. You know, the new person in your life isn't replacing the person you love. It's just another person to love. And, and that person, you know, Dwayne will always be a part of my life. And, and my friends have to understand I'll talk about him as if he is still alive because mm-hmm. I do have Dwayne stories and I can't stop telling those Dwayne stories because he's gone. Good point. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, let's switch gears and literally because I don't mean to be... <laughs> I think you know what's coming. No pun intended here, right? So right. what in the world inspired you to rebuild a motorcycle? Tell us how that all came about. Well, when I certainly met Dwayne, and he had become, he had bought his first Harley when he was 13. So he had been a Harley rider and a biker his whole life, essentially. And at, when his daughter was born in 1982, he stopped riding because the wife at that time, Jessica's mother, didn't believe that father's rode motorcycle, so he kind of gave it up for her. One of the things our marriage did was kind of put him back on Harleys, mm. and he and he became convinced that if I could ride a Harley, 
I would get, I would find my voice again, my power, I'd get over that abusive marriage. And he certainly was proven right in that. He found a shovelhead Harley, which is description of the motor, looks like overturned shovelhead. It's the 1980. When we had first been married, and we rebuilt that together, and I rode on the back of that shovelhead for years until we moved to Northern California, and I decided that I wanted to ride my own. I really wanted to ride when I wanted to ride and not wait for him to ride on the back. He and I both agreed that he could not teach me to ride a motorcycle. That would not be a good thing for our relationship. So I took a motorcycle class at a community college. And Dwayne always said there are two kind of people who try out riding motorcycles. The ones who go, oh, no, I can't do that. And the ones who go, woohoo, let's do that again. And I certainly belong to, I certainly belong to the woohoos. So I... I loved riding solo. I loved the experience. And he's, within about six months, I started on a Honda Shadow. Within six months, I was ready for a Harley, and he brought a police road king home for me. Oh, my goodness. How did you respond? It, it was, in the beginning, a little intimidating, but I just got on it, and I rode to the parking lot across the street. We lived across the street from the school. And he, I, he was he was right. He said that large Harleys are more well-balanced. The motor sits lower in the frame, so the weight just below you. It was a beautiful experience. It it curved easily. We moved together. We danced through the parking lot, and so I was I was a you know he would tell everyone I rode for an hour and I just ride by the garage and he'd be sitting in the lawn chair smoking a cigarette and he'd give me a thumbs up and I'd pass him by. So <laughs> now, how does this relate to the title of your book? She rode a Harley. Well, she rode a Harley. The title's interesting. That is Brooke Warner. She writes press. Who's my publisher? Uh, that is a line from a song. The, the book originally was titled Kick-Ass Harley because one of the last things Dwayne asked me, he said he wasn't leaving me much money, but what he, with what he had, could I buy myself a kick-ass Harley when he was gone? So that seemed to be the title. But Brooke and I had a conversation that that is about the Harley, and she said this line from a song mm-hmm, mm-hmm. seems to focus on the woman riding the Harley. And I agreed with her, and so the title then switched to She Wrote a Harley. And you share your, is this a memoir? You share your whole story? I share the 15 years of my husband's marriage. It starts with the escape from the abusive marriage. And it, it ends in the aftermath of my husband's death and my attempting to keep that promise to buy another He passed in 2011, so he's been gone eight years. And you've gone through a lot of different changes, I am sure. Absolutely. And you're emotionally stronger. Yes, you do get emotionally stronger. There are still moments, and I think people need to understand that. There are moments you just wake up, and and the whole thing, you go through it again, and you think, wow, I was doing so well. But it it just comes and it goes. And how do you get through those moments for someone who may be in that place right now? Sometimes I learned, and I did have a wonderful therapist counselor over the last eight years, I don't see her as much as I did, who said that one of the things I did was just fight it because I had to pretend I was strong and, and, you know, however we tell ourselves that. And I had to just let myself grieve. And so sometimes I will just have a good cry, and then I'll just sort of dust myself off and go about my life. I might talk to my daughter. I might call a good friend, so I might reach out to someone and just share it with them. And then, you know, once I allow myself that moment, then I'll, I'll move on. And certainly not give yourself a bad time. I think that's no. very important, correct? Yes. No. That's good. I know there's a lot of women cyclists out there, and more so than ever. But is 
A woman riding a Harley still regarded as trying to break into a big boys club? I, yes, I would say that male motorcycle riders are probably the, the unapologetically chauvinistic in the world because it is just, it is a man's world. It's been a man's world from the beginning. Now, more and more women are riding and more and more women are riding Harleys, but there are still some cultural things that, that just aren't going to change in that sort of environment. And so how did you deal with those? Or did you? Well, well, I did deal with it. I had sort of a, a, a ticket into the boys club in many ways. My uh, husband, Dwayne, worked at Harley shops for most of our married life. So n- that gave me nice discounts mm-hmm. on Harley parts, but I hung out in Harley shops. So I got to know the mechanics, the clients I rode with groups. And so I made connections that way that I think many women don't have because, you know, Harley has has two separate groups. There's the Harley owner group, which is hogs, but then there's ladies of hogs. So they literally separate you. And I'm sure women have joined the hog chapter, but it's not traditionally that way. But so I was able to ride with those men. And I, you know, I, I shared with you that I became more of an, in fact, many men would say I rode like a man. I really wanted to just ride the Harley. I enjoyed the companionship of the men. I became, they accepted me. I am not a girly girl, and I thought that was part of riding a Harley. You gave up girly things. So riding with a lot of the women's groups was just painful. They'd want to stop every hour, and they'd put on lipstick. And there was just things that they did that I just drove me crazy. And I thought, oh, okay. I enjoyed riding with women's groups. I rode with women in the wind many years. They would ride 400, 500 miles, and they didn't stop, and they didn't paint things pink. So that those were more my people. There's a title for you. They didn't paint things pink. <laughs> I was like, why, why would you paint a heart with pink? Do you still ride? I do not, and that is certainly the way the memoir ends. I went to Arda Shop and test road to prove that I could, and I could. The, the problem is that riding solo without that motor on my right being Dwayne was extremely emotional and difficult. Mm. And so I've not quite moved past it. I will always be a Harley rider, but right now I'm grounded by choice. And do you miss it? Oh, yes, yeah. every day. Yes. So what's in your future? You, your book just came out. She wrote a Harley. And are you going to be writing more? Or Yes, I am writing more. I've, I've got a sort of a true life-based novel. I, I think I've got a theme of women overcoming odds and so my mother was one of those women so there's pieces of her story I would like to put in a novel. Well I really appreciate what you shared today Mary Jane. I grew up in Wisconsin. Oh (laughs) you've got some writers there. And what I never understood is how Wisconsin law does not require you to wear a helmet when you're on a on a motorcycle but (laughs) we used to be able to go from California to Washington DC and certainly along the southern border of those states there were only there was only one that we had to wear a helmet really it's it's fairly common yeah oh my goodness interesting is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion and any any part of your story or any words of encouragement that you'd like to share well i would certainly like to encourage everyone to never give up hope because you never know what's waiting for you on the other side of despair and certainly if anyone would like to contact me they can go to my website at maryjaneblack.com and send me an email and we can be in touch that way. One thing I really appreciate about you is your attitude. And no matter what life kicks you, 
you certainly have been one to pick up the pieces and to move forward and that's always encouraging when you hear these stories so I thank you and I look forward to reading your book and I all know that my audience would love a copy and so I'm assuming they can go to Amazon yes they can go to Amazon okay. I'm on Barnes and Noble if you just search she wrote a Harley it'll come up on pals and everyone perfect excellent thank you again Mary Jane and appreciate you being on never ever give up hope Thank you, Caroline. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.